Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. Uh, it's election season, which means a national political debate is in full swing. In fact, on the day we're releasing this episode, there's going to be another Democratic presidential debate. Um, we don't have the audio yet from that. This one is from a previous one on CNN. But just in time for the heightened political season, a scholar is out with a new book that she says can provide guidance for how schools and colleges can help revive democracy. The guiding principle for the book sounds simple. In fact, it boils down to a single word. Hope. The book is called Learning How to Hope, Reviving Democracy Through Our Schools and Civil Society. And it's by Sarah Stitzlein, a professor of education and also an affiliate professor of philosophy at the University of Cincinnati. I describe hope as a kind of habit. Um, It's a habit that we can develop over time that can be nurtured. And so if that habit of hope is a proclivity to want to change and improve the world for oneself and often for other people, that's something we can learn in schools. Even though that might sound pretty uncontroversial, it turns out her approach is at odds with at least one popular educational philosophy. And even if you agree with her, how exactly do you go about teaching hope? We'll get into that on today's episode. And we have a call for your help at the end, so we hope you'll stay with us all the way through. I started the conversation by asking Stisline why she thinks that hope is actually in short supply these days. Yeah, it, it would seem hope something we all know about, a lot of us have it, and yet I don't think it's really all that obvious right now. Um, we see our country struggling. We see democracy struggling. Uh, we see citizens struggling, um, burdened down with hyperpartisanship, folks struggling to work across the aisle, inability to get things done in DC as we're kind of struggling to find some common ground and work toward a common good. And, and we see individual citizens who are struggling and not feeling very hopeful um, in their personal lives. Um, we certainly see things like the rise of opioid addiction, suicide rates, um, but also in their political lives. Um, the annual World Values Survey is given each year, and it shows us that citizens are increasingly feeling cynical rather than hopeful. Um, they're feeling that they can't influence public policy, uh, and they're feeling more supportive of authoritarianism rather than democracy as a result. So while hope might seem like something we all know and want and celebrate, there's a lot of evidence right now that we're actually in a significant swing of despair. Hmm. And it's an election year, um, as as the, you know, it's hard to, to miss now in 2020 here. And the title of your book, it made me think of the former President Barack Obama's campaign encouraging, you know, hope that was all the posters, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and I wonder how you are, how you situate what you're talking about in terms, in relation to that message. Well, that's a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll share a little bit of a, a personal story. So um, during the 2008 election, of course, we all remember those iconic images that were on t-shirts and uh, posters of Barack Obama with the hope slogan underneath his face. And um, it was during that time that Obama, of course, was writing about what he called uh, having the audacity to hope. 
And I had been uh, a longtime Republican. I'm born and raised in a farming family in the Midwest. And I was in a rather new courtship with Democrats, if you will. And I kind of got swept up in that message of hope that was related to Obama. Um, so a lot of us, um, you know, are kind of cheering for Obama from, from our couches and from home. And some of us actually, you know, took to the streets to work for Obama's campaign or to do things to get behind his message. And, and I did just that um, on the day before the inauguration in 2009. I took to the streets of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where I was living at the time. Um, Obama called for a day of public service. And um, I, I headed out to, to engage. I thought this was a great, hopeful way to start a new presidency. But within a few months, like a lot of my peers, I found myself um, increasingly frustrated, back at home, on the couch, naively kind of content to believe that things were going to get better, but not really doing anything to participate in that change. And so, like many of my peers on the left, as well as some on the right today, uh, following uh, President Trump's election, I felt that I, you know, a person might have had hope during election year, but we weren't necessarily doing anything about it beyond casting a ballot. So when we return to a new election in 2020, my book is trying to offer a way to show us how to act on hope, not just have it from our couches or from our ballot boxes, but to actually bring it into our everyday lives as citizens. What, we've written a lot as we write about education about the notion of grit. Um, this, this idea popularized, I think, by Angela Duckworth about that perseverance can kind of can and should be taught in schools. Um, but this is something it seems like you're you're kind of at odds with a little bit. I am. Um, you know, certainly I, I want to celebrate the kind of tenacity and perseverance uh, that's a part of grit. That's certainly a good personal character trait to have. But I want to move beyond it because grit opens up a whole host of problems, um, whether it's seen as this kind of individualist trait, you know, this Horatio Alger stories, the pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality, where we almost find ourselves celebrating individuals who are facing adversity without recognizing the fact that we should be working to change the status, change the status of adversity so that um, we're overcoming and improving our surroundings rather than just celebrating those who are able to, you know, work hard and persevere within them. And so my alternative in calling for hope is really an effort to move us past looking at how individuals sustain uh, themselves in difficult, challenging situations to how can we work together as citizens to improve the overall situation so folks don't have to endure um, difficult struggles related to things like racism, sexism, poverty, etc. I see. So in a way, it's, if I understand you correctly, it sounds like Talking, focusing on grit kind of assumes there's going to be inequality and here's how to push through it. Whereas you're saying, what if we look at the systems different, change the system? Yes. Yes. Change the systems. And then, you know, hope, unlike grit, is a lot more aligned with imagination and creativity and change. So it's about envisioning how things could be better and then working to improve those larger situations rather than just enduring and overcoming them as individuals. 
I guess one of the things that surprised me um, in in your book is that you kind of argue that hope, though, is something that can be taught. Um, and I guess, what does it look like to teach hope? Yeah, I think this is one of the best parts about the way I conceive of hope, because I describe hope as a kind of habit. Um, it's a habit that we can develop over time that can be nurtured. And in that way, it's something we can do in schools or in civil organizations, clubs and community groups, churches, etc. These are all spaces where we can nurture this proclivity. Here, you know, habit is a, a proclivity or a predisposition to act or behave in a certain way. And so if that habit of hope is a proclivity to want to change and improve the world for oneself and often for other people, that's something we can learn in schools um, through the way that um, the way that we work together in inquiry and deliberation, but also through the content that we learn, the way that we learn to use history and storytelling and imagination and creativity in our schools. And it sounds like you teach a class at your university called Save Our Schools um, about yes. current problems in the K-12 system and how to fix them. Can you Maybe, maybe you're teaching it yourself, I guess, in that, in that setting. What's, what's that class like? Yeah, um, that was my favorite class to teach. Um, so Save Our Schools is a course that is introducing students. Some are pre-service teachers, but others are engineers, uh, biologists across the spectrum for the university who come to tackle some of the problems that we're facing in K-12 education right now. And so we spend the course um, introducing them to those problems, but orienting the entire course around what I see as the key civic question, and that is, what should we do? I think this is a question that really gets at the pragmatist spirit of hope, that kind of collective orientation toward possibility, toward change, and toward working together. So I start the course by um, getting my students out in the community. I put them in the role of a listener so they can um, learn from teachers and schools and nonprofits and others working on education issues in the community to figure out what's going on, uh, what's working, what's not, what's been tried, what should we try. And then back in the classroom, I'm arming the students with historical understanding, helping them understand how we've come to the struggles we are facing today in our schools. I give them data and scientific studies and research to show them what's been happening, what's led to where we are now. And then I'm guiding them through inquiry and through problem solving so that they can come up with better solutions. Um, I get them out in the community volunteering with local nonprofits to see how folks outside of physical school spaces are working on education issues. And then I develop the kind of skills politically that I think are really important to uh, nurturing a spirit of hope in our citizen lives. So I, for example, um, they work on a project where they write letters to the editor and here they're working to develop their skills of argumentation and political dissent and storytelling, you know, how could schools be better so that they can encourage others to get on board with their plans for change and improvement in schools. And then finally, um, the course closes with the opportunity for them to present their ideas for improving and changing our K-12 schools. I bring in a panel of state legislators who talk with the students about next steps for implementing their ideas, for making policies about them, and 
I'm really pleased to share that there's been some significant impact from that course, um, shaping some of the policies and practices that we have in our K-12 schools in Ohio. And this kind of course is meant to scaffold that hope, that political hope as a, as a habit, so that my students walk away ready to continue civic and political action um, with different populations and different problems, not school related to other things in uh, in their particular subject areas and in their future careers. Can you give an example of something that's come out of the class? Sure. Um, early on, a few years back, I was teaching it and I had a group of students who was quite concerned about early childhood literacy and how do we improve literacy rates. Our state at the time was about to pass a, what we call the third grade reading guarantee, where uh, we now expect all students to be proficient in reading before they leave third grade. And my students were struggling to see how do we get children to that point by the time they reach third grade. Um, so working with some local nonprofits uh, and an organization uh, in our community, they spearheaded a call for universal um, free preschool. And, um, you know, this was a, a large effort. I don't want to just say this came just from the students from my class, but after making a presentation, they then went on to present at the State House. Um, eventually, it made it onto our ballot in Cincinnati, and our voters decided to approve uh, two years of free preschool to uh, three and four year olds uh, in, in our state, and it's a, or pardon me, in our city. And it's been just a wonderful success. We're seeing significant impact uh, on early childhood literacy and learning rates in our in our community. But it seems like by having a class so steeped in political activism, I'm sure you had students of varying political stripes in the class, I'm guessing. And, you know, one person's hope might be the kind of a nightmare of another person. How do you how do you how do you manage that and and keep people from being frustrated when in, in this era, as you as you mentioned, that's so polarized. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face right now as educators is how to find that common ground and how to work across those differences. But one of the skills that students need, and this could be K-12 students as well as university students right now, is to have those kinds of values clarifying conversations, to talk about why one feels so committed to a certain view or value uh, or a particular hope for our country, and then to figure out how we negotiate and navigate that space in between two opposing or differing views. You know, I, I talk a lot with the students about what does it mean to form common ground together? Not necessarily find common ground, but actually work to build it between us. You know, what can we agree upon? And what is it that's been a lasting, long-standing part of democracy that we can return to? Ideas like equality and justice and opportunity, things that folks from different uh, political backgrounds can all get on board with. But it's hard work. Uh, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of careful conversations in the classroom. It does feel like, you know, we, we talked to somebody from the um, Heterodox Academy of, of uh, but uh, you know some some episodes ago which is a group encouraging kind of political um, viewpoint diversity at colleges but I guess I, I wonder if any if, if you've had the if you've 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 had the the labeling or if anyone's accused you of, of making this kind of a, of a liberal political project um, despite no, your I, you know despite your you're saying that it's it's a more bipartisan effort 
Yeah, I, I've not faced that. Um, and I think perhaps part of it is because of my own political background. I speak openly with the students about having been raised um, in a Republican family, a strongly Republican family. Um, I continue, you know, to have many of the values that I had as a child growing up in that community, strong family values, um, religious views, etc. I speak openly with about those, uh, about those with my students. And I also share how some of my views changed over time, um, particularly after having been uh, the spouse of someone who was called to active duty in the military after 9-11, how some um, political changes in our community have impacted and shaped my views in new ways. And so I'm showing them how I'm someone who myself has had to move in and out of different political parties and political views. And I, I, you know, I model a space in our classroom where change can happen, where students from multiple different backgrounds can come together and across those borders, uh, modeling it for them myself and welcoming and encouraging them to move in different ways. It's not just a, you know, let's all come over to the left or all come over to this kind of, you know, uh, democratic view of, of politics. That's certainly not the case. And, and, and I'm grateful to say I haven't heard that from my students in my course. What do you think then is the biggest obstacle to this um, advice you're giving in your book about encouraging hope um, in in classroom settings? Um, I'd say two major obstacles. Um, One is related to trust. The kind of work that I'm talking about doing in political and civic life requires trusting in others, uh, especially those who may be different from ourselves, whether that's in political Uh, views or demographic background. And that can be hard. Uh, Increasingly in a hyper-partisan kind of environment, we see folks driving farther and farther apart. And with that comes this increasing mistrust of others, um, believing others might be out for their own personal gain or, you know, out to harm us in some way. And so it puts a lot of onus on educators to create spaces where we can build trust and overcome some of those uh, factors that are working against trust in society. And um, the second part is um, that my own background I think may give a limited take on the um, the kind of despair that is deep and difficult to overcome with a hopeful vision of political life. The kind of despair that comes mm-hmm. out of enduring long-standing systematic racism, for example. Um, some leading mm-hmm. scholars of color today. Uh, have turned instead of to something like hope to argue for um, disengagement from political life in the way that I'm describing it, more of kind of a a self-protection, turning to others like themselves to create spaces of community and protection, um, whereas I'm calling for this kind of continued ongoing work, you know, this effort to keep working across boundaries of difference, uh, those who have endured more of those struggles personally, some of them are turning to um, to opposite uh, things. And I, I think I need to wrestle with that a bit more as I think about how my calls to hope may impact particular individuals, especially those of color and coming from some of our more impoverished communities in the United States. You, if I were to talk to one other person to kind of um dig into this a little more who would i talk to who would you recommend that i talk to 
Well, I just mentioned some of the uh, sincere, deep kinds of despair that come about related to racism. And some of the leading scholars of color in our country right now who've writing, who have written about this, I would be especially interested to hear what they have to say. I'm thinking here of folks like Tennessee Coates, uh, Calvin Warren. Um, these are folks who've been writing about black nihilism, about Afrocentrism, uh, calls to kind of shore up the black community and to, um, to find joy within themselves, to find um, new spirit and new protection within themselves in a way that's kind of uh, runs counter to what I'm calling for, these kind of ongoing cross border crossing kind of actions of civic life that I'm calling for. Um, I would love to hear what what they might say and how they might respond. Um, some others have picked up their views, um, scholars of color uh, like Melvin Rogers, who um, does political theory out of Brown University, has has done a great response, Eddie Glaude, um, and others. And uh, certainly Cornell West is probably the most well-known writer uh, of color about hope. So I would love to enter into conversation with them to hear a little bit more how they might respond to um, some of my, what they might see as more, you know, rose-colored glasses, um, outlooks on hope. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Sure. So happy to join you. So I've just reached out to the folks Stitzline recommended, including Ta-Nehisi Coates. And we'll happily bring them on and ask them about this and other issues. If we can get them on, we'll do our best. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to weigh in on whether you think hope can and should be taught, or maybe you disagree and have an alternative way of looking at this, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot me an email at jeff at edsurge.com, or better yet, use the voice memo app on your phone or whatever they call it on the uh, Android these days to record a short response and send that in. Again, the email address is jeff at edsurge.com. And we'll share some highlights in a future episode. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations like this one. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. And if you like the show, please tell a friend about it on social media or just in person. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. In fact, it it boils down to a single word. Hope. 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 I cannot say that without the pee popping that.